We have a brand new guest today on Church and Culture. His name is John Cribb, and he's written a wonderful new historical novel about Abe Lincoln. We'll talk about that at length in a moment, but let me tell you that John Cribb is a best-selling author and editor of 10 volumes. He wrote another novel about Lincoln. It's a Lincoln series, we'll find out. Old Abe, a novel about the final five years of Lincoln's life. And this newest novel, The Rail Splitter, talks about Lincoln's early years. And it's a wonderful book. I've been reading it all day. It's The writing is so good and the research is so good, you really feel like you're getting to know the young Abe Lincoln. John has written about a variety of subjects from history to education. He's been on all the radio, TV, and podcast shows. He was recently on C-SPAN talking about this book we're going to talk about. He's published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and so forth. During the Reagan administration, John served at the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. He went to Vanderbilt University, and I must say the quality of the writing shows that he did. (laughs) So, John Cribb, welcome to Church and Culture. Hi, Deal. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm, I'm, I appreciate it. You know, your your writing reminds me so much of Shelby Foote. Is he someone who had any influence on you? Yeah, well, that's a real compliment. I, I appreciate that. I, I love that uh, comparison. Uh, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a Shelby Foote fan. Well, you went to Vanderbilt. Did you have any of the uh, great fugitive agrarian teachers? You know, um, I had the. I think the one that kind of was left over part of that camp because uh, the agrarians were, you know, kind of mostly gone by the time I there was at Walter Sullivan. I don't know if you did. Oh, yeah, I've read a couple of his novels. Yeah. He also was, wrote a memoir, I think, of Andrew Lytle. Yeah. Maybe it was Cleon yeah. Brooks. I can't remember. But yeah. uh, you studied English literature there. Yeah, so I was an English uh, lit major, British and American literature. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, we, we get into the the book, or else what I can tell you, one little place where I had a little fun with that. Um, well, go ahead and, and have uh, it. Go ahead and have it right now. Go ahead. Well, there's a um, there's a, a part in um, in the book where I think you've, you've probably read it, where Lincoln is young fella, and he's really when he's when he's really young, he a teenager. He think he really likes hanging out on the Ohio River. There's all kinds of you know yeah. interesting stuff down there. And at one point he builds a little, a little skiff, a little, little boat, and earns some money by ferrying uh, people out on the Ohio River to catch steamers that are coming down the river. Because the steamboats, usually, unless it was a big port of call, they wouldn't pull over to a dock. You know, they would just kind of pause in the middle of the river and people would, would come out in, in boats to get on or off. And, um, there's a, there's a chapter that is based on a, on an absolutely true event that Lincoln told people about, about, about him being dragged to court. Well, I'm talking about right before that, the one where he he um, he takes uh, two travelers out to um, meet a steamer. Um, oh, right. Two two gentlemen, and um, he he told that he he took these two two travelers out, and that they each gave him um, a uh, a dollar. I think it was a dollar or a half dollar a piece. And it's real the first real money he had earned, uh, you know, that he didn't have to turn over to his father. Uh, he ends up dropping one of them in the river. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, that chapter, I had a little bit, this is where it gets, sometimes, you know, uh, this, these, these, both these books track history very closely. There's a date at the top of each chapter, so you know, and this stuff happened. But anyway, uh, it is historical fiction, so sometimes I have fun with it. And I, the two travelers, I, um, there's a, there's a, um, a kind of a jovial, one of them's kind of jovial. The jovial travel and the melancholy traveler, and I'm um, I'm playing there with the two sides of Lincoln's personality. He famously had these two sides: the, the uh, you know laughing, joking Lincoln, the storytelling Lincoln. They said he he was so funny. People said he could make a cat laugh. He was so funny. Hmm. And then that famous melancholy side. These these two travelers are kind of a reflection of, of his you know his two oh, sides yeah. of his personality. But I also have uh, the the jovial travel part of the dialogue. He's uh, He's quoting uh, from Milton, which I studied at Vanderbilt. That's what that's what brought it to mind for me. I had a great. I took and studied Milton for uh, either a semester or a year, 
but there's Milton. A Milton is that, a tough nut, John. Yeah, yeah, but, Mil- but Lincoln would have known Milton, believe it or not. That's yeah. the kind of stuff that the readers, he, the books he could have gotten hold on the frontier, he would have. You know, he was a, he was really a man of Shakespeare and the Bible, most of all. But anyway, there's a pair of uh, poems that um, uh, Milton wrote, Allegro and Il Penseroso, um, and uh, which is kind of the uh, the jovial man and the the, the thoughtful man. And I have one of the one of the jovial travel quotes uh, from those two poems, or what makes an allusion to them. So that was my little uh, my little tribute to my Vanderbilt education. There you go. And uh, <laughs> but I think the whole book is a tribute, and because it's so well written, it's it, so many people re- write novels that don't know how to write novels. You know how to write novels. I well, thank you. I mean, you, this is the real thing, and it's. Published by Republic, I guess Al Regnery had a hand yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that people should read this. I think they should very likely read Old Abe. And are you going to do the whole life of Lincoln in historical fiction? These two pretty much, you know, the, the Rail Splitter starts him off as a as a teenager on the Indiana frontier in 1826, um, and takes him up through just past the Lincoln-Douglas debate, so it ends in 1859, and then Old Abe picks up in May of 1860 when he's being nominated for the presidency and takes him through the end of his life. So these two books together are pretty much, you know, the, the story of his life, um, because in The Rail Splitter, there's some, there's some, you know, allusions back to his years, his very early years in Kentucky. But, um, and as far as I know, this these two books taken together are the only treatment of his whole life from his youth on the frontier through the end uh, in the uh, historical fiction like this. A novel well, I, guess, I guess Carl Sandburg's book would not be considered historical fiction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nonfiction. Yeah, and it's beautifully yeah. written. It's one of the most beautifully written of all the Lincoln nonfiction biographies. Um, I think particularly his first two volumes, uh, The Prairie Years, which are roughly the years that uh, The Rail Splitter uh, covers. But yeah, that's nonfiction. Now there are obviously other Lincoln novels out there, and, and they're they're young, you know, books for picture books and books for very young people that are fiction, basically that cover. Well, I can't imagine any of them being better than yours, frankly. Oh, well, I mean, when, you, when you've got me page turning all day, and way beyond the point where I'm thinking I got to finish this book for my interview, right? Just obligatory. Yeah. And I'm enjoying. It greatly, and I'm quoting it to my wife and son. Uh, I thought one of the, the early episodes really touched me, and that had to. Could you tell our listeners about the book that got wet? Yeah, I, sure. That's right. The book kind of starts off that way, and that's a, a true story. Um, and I, I should tell your your listeners that I I, um, I really did draw as much as I could on primary source documents, and you know. Things like interviews of the people who knew Lincoln when he was young, which his law partner, Billy Herndon, after he was gone, devoted several years of his life to interviewing people who had known him back on the Indiana frontier in Illinois and, you know, way, way back. And um, some of those people, he borrowed a, a biography of George Washington from a farmer named Josiah Crawford, who lived not too far from the Lincolns. They called him Cy Crawford. And um, he, uh, Lincoln, he, he slept in the, the, um, right under the roof of the cabin that the Lincolns, uh, had. It's a tiny little settlement in southern Indiana called Little Pigeon Creek, just kind of a scattering of cabins in the woods, maybe about 15, 17 miles from the Ohio River. And he slept up in the loft. There was a hole in the ceiling and a, a ladder made of just pegs driven into the wall, wooden pegs. So he could go up that peg ladder up, up into the loft. And he slept on just a corn husk mattress on the floor. And he bars this book about George Washington. And, you know, books are very precious things out on the frontier. They're hard to come by. And he, he puts it in a, you know, little cubby next to his bed, a little crack between two logs. And it rains that night. And the rain comes in through the roof and it ruins this book. And he wakes up the next morning. He's horrified, you know, that he's ruined this book. But he knows what he has to do. He walks over to Cy Crawford's cabin and shows it to him and, and you know, basically says, I don't, I don't have any money to pay you with it. Um, and, but Crawford says, well, you can, you know, you can work for it. But the, the book was worth 75 cents. And a day's wage for working in a cornfield back then was 25 cents a day. So young Abe Lincoln works for three days in Cyclops' cornfield to pay off this book. And this is a, a true story. Um, that, but he uh, also received the, the gentleman gave him the book. Yes, 
He gives him the book. And of course, yeah. it was it was soaking wet. But he, in between stalks of corn, which he was pulling off to feed the hogs, I guess over the winter. Um, yes. He's like trying to read pages. Of yeah. It. What he's a wonderful excited. story. Yeah, it is. It, it, that um, comes more than one source. And I was, as I recall, uh, Cy Crawford was, I think, passed away by the time Lincoln's law partner, Billy Herndon, was collecting these interviews. But his wife, Elizabeth, uh, was still alive. And I think, as I recall, she was at least one of the, uh, you know, the, is the sources of that, that, that story. That book that um, he, about George Washington, um, now, he, we know he read Parson Weems' famous uh, book about George Washington. Uh, in my in my novel, I he, he I choose to have the, the book that he ruins. We don't know exactly which biography it was, but there's a was a great Lincoln historian named Lewis Warren that made a very good case that the book was probably David Ramsey's Life of Washington. So that's the one I'm having in room. He, he, you know, he had read a book of Weems, and now he's wanting to read another one. And later um, on in the book, when in the rail splitter, when he's I'm sorry, this is actually in the book Old Dave, the novel Old Dave, other uh, Lincoln novel. When he's on his way to Washington, um, he gives a he gives a speech um, in which he says he uh, he he refers to um, the phrase "firm" as the uh, surge repelling rock. I think is the way he puts it, um, and uh, refers to Washington and the crossing the Delaware. But that the title piece in the front of that book, Ramsey's book, has a, a picture of a rock. And it has George Washington written on the rock, and it, and, it, and the waves coming over, and the, the tide, the caption is something like uh, uh, "as firm as the surge repelling rock." So that that you know, is Lincoln, in rail splitters. That's in there. Yes, yes. And Lincoln actually did give that speech, um, and on the way to uh, to Washington. So yeah, all that is in both of these books, and and so this is an example of of you know instances in his life that I'm I'm, I'm pulling from real life and trying to bring it alive uh, in a in the way of historical. Well, you must have done a immense amount of research because what you've done is you've recreated the place, the setting, the manners and customs, but also the way of speaking, idiomatic way of speaking, and uh, I'm, that must have really taken you a long time to. Uh, find out exactly what kind of turns of phrase they did, what yeah. kind of uh, special little sayings they had, because they're all through the, uh, the dialogue. Yeah, and I did I did do a whole lot of research, um, including a lot of you know book research. I've I've got probably close to three hundred books about Lincoln and his times on my shelves, you know, home in my home office and you know, scattered around the house. And a lot of them are are books by written by people who knew Lincoln and wrote about their first-hand conversations and interactions with him. Those were absolutely invaluable. And then, as I say, the interviews that, that people like Billy Herndon did, you know, where he took down the words of the people and they recounted their conversations with Lincoln. And other primary source documents like memoirs and letters, you get a sense, you know, about just kind of diving into all that after a while and steeping yourself in it, you, you get a sense of how people talked about it. And as, and, and as much as I could, I built all that dialogue and, you know, from, from those original sources directly into the dialogue in the book. Um, now, I'm, I'm filling in the gaps and the details with my imagination, uh, but a lot of that you know, that back and forth. I've drawn from, uh, you know, Lincoln's writings and then the, the, the writings uh, or interviews of other people who knew him to try to recreate all that. So I tell well, people, I love, you know. I, I love the feats of strength that you bring in. I assume those yeah. are like the, the wrestling with uh, uh, Mr. Rutledge, was it? Jack Armstrong. Jack yeah. Armstrong. Not the mm-hmm. Jack Armstrong who became a great prize fighter, right? No, yeah, no. no, but he is... Uh, yeah, that's a true story, and a really yeah. very important event in Young... Tell, tell uh, our young listeners Lincoln. about that. I want them to get a real taste of, and flavor of your book, because I, yeah, I was well, just ready. I was just totally engrossed in that story. Well, thank you. Thank you. Lincoln, um, he... Uh, Earl, as a young man, he, um, he... For about six years, just about six years, he lives in a tiny little village... Uh, in Illinois, out on the frontier called New Salem, just a little little village of about a hundred people living in it. He first he first goes there in 1831. 
by the way, 18, in 1831, uh, Chicago also had 100 people living in it. That was the size of Chicago. So this is how early, you know. And, and, and by the way, can I insert this? That is it yeah. the case that New Orleans had 50,000? Yeah, it was a big city. I mean, that wow. was a lot. I, I really yeah. noticed that yeah. when first time Lincoln went down the river to New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, that was a real eye, but it's the first time he'd ever seen a big city. But tell us but, about uh, the wrestling match. Yeah, he, he gets to this, this little village and he gets a job as a, as a clerk in a little log cabin general store to sell stuff behind the counters. And there's a gang of good natured rowdies in the area called the Clary's Grove Boys. And they take note of this newcomer, this big, tall, strong newcomer, and they decide to test him. And so they challenge him to a wrestling match. They challenge him to, to wrestle their, their leader, Jack Armstrong, the, who's the village champion. He's never lost a wrestling match. And, um, so Lincoln knows if he doesn't step up this challenge that they're going to call him a coward. He's going to be done in this little village. So he, he says, yeah, I'll wrestle, I'll wrestle Jack. And so people come from miles around to, uh, see this, these two guys wrestle. And, uh, I guess, should we tell him who wins or what the, the ending is or should we just let the readers? No, uh, don't tell him, but yeah, it's, it's Look, funny. It's, it's, it really gives you a sense of Lincoln. Uh, especially the very ending of the story of how he has to stand up to some guys. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. And really, the yeah. whole thing's true. And you know, there are several eyewitnesses to that wrestling match. There, there are differing accounts in the interviews about you know exactly you know who won who how. But but everybody agreed that how Lincoln handled himself right. in that endeared him to the people of the village. And really helped set his path, and that little village is where he goes into politics. Short time well, later, but it they, it seems like there that the uh, prominent people in the village notice his leadership qualities, yeah. Yeah. and they want to promote exactly. him for state legislature. Yeah, that's right? right. They come to him and say, "We think he'd be good at representing us." And he he runs in eighteen thirty two for the state legislature from this little village. He loses, but then he comes back. You know, tries again two years later in eighteen thirty four, and he ends up spending four terms in the legislature, and that's how Abraham Lincoln gets into politics. And in between, he was postmaster. Yeah, postmaster and a surveyor, and he did all kinds of things. You know, he well, he wanted cars, to be he, postmaster because he could read any everything. Yeah, he could read the newspapers before he before people came in to pick him up. He could read the newspapers and the journals. And, you know, John, and, I'm, uh, sure that, I'm sure that you feel the way I do about books. I mean, I'm surrounded by books in several mm-hmm. rooms of my house. I'm sure you are, more, if yeah. not stacks. Yeah. And that story about his love for books and his craving for books, uh, which were rare out there on the mm-hmm. prairie, uh, just struck me like this man understood books are the way we grow intellectually, even emotionally. It's the way we test ourselves in the realm of what we don't know as well as what we know. Yeah, right, exactly. And he really, you know, he really would literally walk miles through the Indiana woods to lay his hands on a book if he, if he could. When he he was, did for when that was, grammar book, Seven Miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got hold of Kirkham's grammar when he was living in New Salem. He realized he was never going to be a good speaker or writer if he didn't. No, is no better, you know, more grammar. So he walks uh, several miles to get that book and he brings it back to New Salem and he reads it and studies it. And he used to hand it to friends and say, Here, quiz me on my grammar. And he well, turns himself into Have you got grammar. a copy of that book? Kirkham's Grammar? Yeah. Um, I don't have an original copy, but um, it's online. You can, you can find well, it I'm gonna, online. I'm going to take a look at that because he ended up being such a fabulous writer. I'd like to see what inspired <laughs> him, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the, what, okay, let's back up. What gave you the idea of writing novels about Abe Lincoln in the first place? Well, you know, like, I, 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 you know, I majored in English at Vanderbilt, and I've always wanted to write a novel, but it didn't, it didn't occur to me, and I've always been a big Lincoln fan, but it, it didn't occur to me to try to do this with Lincoln until uh, 2006, and I was back living in my hometown of uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, after living in the D.C. area for almost 20 years. And I checked out of the library the book that, the, that you brought up a, a few minutes ago, Carl Sandburg's magnificent uh, nonfiction biography of Lincoln, six volumes, I think, and was reading that set of, of books about Lincoln. And as I say, it's beautifully written. And at the same time, 
I reread a book I'd read in high school, uh, Irving Stone's uh, uh, historical novel about the life of Michelangelo, The Agony of the Exodus. I read that, too. It's a great book, isn't it? I but, did, you know, yeah. It, uh-huh. it starts him off as starts Michelangelo off as a boy and just takes him through the end of his life. And I, as I said, I'd read it in, in high school for an AP European history class, and I decided to reread it. So I, just, I was I, reading that at the same time I was reading the Sandberg books, and it just made me wonder: well, Has anybody done this for Lincoln? Written a you know a historical novel that kind of walks you through his his whole life? And as far as I could tell, the answer was no. So that's what I set out to do. And originally, my idea was was one big thousand page, you know, Irving Stone, James Mishner size volume. Big, big novel, and that just proved to be unwieldy. So in the end, it, it ended up being two, two separate books, The Rail Splitter and, and Old Age. I, I want to tell this story. Uh, if you read the Shelby Foote Walker Percy letters, you'll read a letter that Shelby Foote wrote to Percy after he read the movie Gore, which was Percy's first published novel. Great novel. I love that novel. Yeah, and what Shelby picks up on is Percy's ability to create a sense of place. And you do that so very well. Uh, even if, you know, walking through the woods or, you know, whatever it is they're doing to the corn stalks, flag, flagging them? Is that what that the word? Um, to feed the hogs? Uh, yeah. They're, they're, um, um, By the way, I had to look up what milk sickness was. Yeah. So you have all this specificity that really takes you to the time and place. You really feel like you're there. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I did that was really, really um, crucial for the for writing this book, and um, it's pulling fodder. I could think of a second of that, that term for getting right. these off the top of Corn fodder. Um, yeah. yeah um, I've, you know, been to all the Lincoln sites from Sinking Spring Farm in Kentucky, where he was born, to Ford Theater, theater where, of course, we assassinated, you know, many times, more than more than once. And that was absolutely crucial to get a sense of place, to walk, you know, the ground that Lincoln, you know, walked, and as much as possible, breathe in the atmosphere that he did, and that try to get a sense of his world. And, of course, a lot of it's gone or built up, and, you know, there are high-rises there now in some places like Washington, D.C., but... but but out on the, you know, where he was born is still very remote, uh, out in Kentucky and the Lincoln boyhood home in, in, uh, southern Indiana. You still get a very good feel for, you know, what that, that, that land was like. And that village in New Salem in Illinois where he lived as a young man has been recreated, rebuilt, and it's a state park in, uh, Illinois and you can go there. And that's a fantastic place to get a sense of who Lincoln was and where he, where he came from. So places like that, you know, it was really absolutely vital for me to go to those places to, to try to... to well, it, show, it shows throughout your, your book. You really feel like the guy telling the story has been there. He has seen this himself, was the sense I had. And uh, Well, thank you. I was amazed at how well Abe Lincoln learned how to build boats. Yeah, yeah. I've always yeah, wondered, yeah. you know, when you put two logs together, I mean, not logs, but planks... How do you do? You know how they're sealed. How, how do they I mean, keep them? From, do you know? Oh, I think yeah. Well, they would they would um, they would caulk them with like a, a, a pine tar pitch is what they would do a lot of times, right? Um, to to get to keep the water out. Um, but it didn't always work. And then that when they that episode when they got stuck on the dam and these things, right. the water started to come in. <laughs> yeah, and Abe Lincoln um, saved them. Yeah, and that also is a true story, and there's several, you know, eyewitnesses that, that, that gave interviews and accounts of it later on, including, including his cousin John Hanks, who was on the, the vessel with him. But that was another episode in his life that would turn to be, a, turn out to be a real turning point for, you know, he called himself a, a, a like, he said I was like a, a, a piece of floating driftwood. I kind of washed up in New Salem, and then, uh, you know, his life begins to kind of, to set a course. Well, you know, another little story, and we've got to tell this quickly. We've only got a few minutes left in this section. Uh, he w- When he first announced to run for the state legislature, he was asked whether he was a Jackson man or Hen- Henry Clay man. Yeah. And his answer was so politic 
that the guys that are putting him up looked at each other and they were totally satisfied. You, that's how you <laughs> yeah, put that's it. Right. Yeah. yeah, because that you know Henry, uh, uh, Jackson was the Andrew Jackson was the hero of the frontier. Most people, yeah, he was the big hero, and uh, Lincoln was uh, was more attracted to Henry Clay. He called him his beau ideal of a statesman uh, later in life. He was his hero, and he was a Whig. Clay was a Whig, and Jackson was a Democrat. So. Uh, Lincoln knew if he was going to be elected, he couldn't, uh, you know, he had to he had to give Jackson his due. He couldn't come off as being an enemy of Jackson. So he, he was politician. In, in one minute, tell our listeners what a Whig is. Well, a, a Whig was, you know, a party that existed before the Republican Party. And uh, they were, among other things, for what they called internal improvements for the American system. They were for, uh, you know, what we would call infrastructure projects, uh, canals, improving roads eventually building railroads, therefore uh, a national bank, because they wanted to build up the interior of the country. That was one of the things that stood for, and that was really what attracted Lincoln to the Whigs, because he was from a very backwards uh, area. Does, he, he saw the value in that. Does that make Jefferson a prefiguring of the Whigs? Well, I guess I... I, I, I don't I'm just, that's Whigs just hit were, me. Yeah, yeah. I guess in some ways... I mean, in some ways he was, I guess. Cause yeah. He, he, well, I... Uh, I <laughs> but he was a Democrat, I guess, of course. Yeah. Democrat, well, I, what do they call them? Democrat, Republicans, or Jefferson? What they, I can't remember what they called the, the party that he was, Jefferson was in. Back in those days, I don't think there yeah. was a lot of consistency. But I am talking to John Cribb about his wonderful new historical novel entitled The Rail Splitter from Republic. And while you're ordering it, go ahead and read the other one, too. It's entitled Old Abe, a novel. Just get both of them and read them. We'll be right back after this short message. I am back with John Cribb, and he has written the second in a series of Lincoln novels, the first was Old Abe, a novel about the last five years of Lincoln's life. This one covers Lincoln's early years. And as I said in the first half hour, it's a wonderful novel, beautifully written, beautifully plotted. Of course, Lincoln had something to do with the plot. But the uh, research behind it is obviously immense. How long did it take you to research and write this, John? Well, the answer is embarrassing. Um, it's... Uh, I- as I said, I got the idea in 2006 and started the research then. And uh, Old Abe came out in 2020, and this book just came out uh, a couple of, um, you know, last month. So, you know, you can do the math there. My wife teases me. She says, John, it only took four years to fight the Civil War. It's taken you <laughs> four times well, time to get both uh, these books out. But it was, you know, it was a part-time labor of love. I mean, sometimes the manuscript sat in the drawer for, for months or a year without me do anything that surprised me I mean the, my first fully written book on under my own name took me ten years yeah but it was a, a his it was a history of the idea of happiness you can imagine how many books I read oh yeah wow yes yeah, yeah so but you know you're a novelist I am so impressed uh how did okay let's talk about that how did you learn to write a novel? I mean, you wrote all those good nonfiction books with Bill Bennett. Yeah. How did you learn to write a novel? Well, just trial and error. I, I did, um, you know, before I ever started on, on this project, I wrote um, several short stories. Um, and, you know, I really admire that, short stories, as a, as a form of, uh, of, of literature. Yeah. Um, because they're almost like prose poems. I mean, you really have to tear things down and, you know, everything counts in a short story. Um, so I just, I kind of, I think that's how I cut my teeth was with short stories. Now, when I say I wrote short stories, I mean, I just wrote them for myself. I'd, I'd never had them published, but I had the drawer full, full of them. Um, so I kind of, you know, that's kind of how I, I practiced. And then when I started this, this project, I, um, you know, I made three or four starts at it. I, I mean, a lot of stuff went in the trash can before I thought, okay, this is it. And um, so I just kind of practiced like anything else. You didn't read any books on how to write a novel? No, 
I don't. I never. I didn't take any classes or seminars no. or anything like that. You must I be just, a, uh, a. You must be a true southerner, John Cribb. <laughs> yeah. Well, more than one person has told me it's ironic that um, somebody that's from South Carolina, you know, the Cradle of Secession, has written these novels about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, but, it's interesting. Yeah. I'll just I'll share this with you and get your reaction. When I first went to D.C from where I was teaching at Fordham in New York City, uh, I, I met a group of people who hated Lincoln. And they invited me down to a gathering they had every year down in Virginia, middle of Virginia, where they basically had one speaker after another talking about what a monster Lincoln was. Yeah. <laughs> how much of that as you have you run into, and which, by the way, I didn't believe, but how much yeah. of that have you run into, and where is that coming from? Well, these days it's coming from the the left. Used to come from the right, I think. And you know, Lincoln every few decades comes under attack, and you know, he seems to survive all the attacks. But there, well, you know, there was some anti-Lincoln sentiment in the South. Obviously, just hard feelings for years and years and years. Um, I wasn't raised that way. I think you know, I was raised to have great um, admiration for him. Um, but I've got some friends who, who tease me good naturedly about it. Not many, but they. But yeah, what, they, they, what is their Lincoln. objection to Lincoln? Um, you know, mainly that he, from that end, uh, that he uh, is one of the uh, ones who's responsible for big government because, you know, the income tax comes along for the first time under Lincoln and the government does grow because he's, you know, got to fight this, this war. And, he, you know, that, that brings government, you know, it grows government. Um, so, you know, I just, I just don't buy that. I mean, by the time Lincoln was gone, the government was still so tiny compared to what it is today. I know, but they, they treat him like he was a monster. And I just, well, yeah, in other words, it's personal. It's not just political. Some of, yeah, some of it's personal. Um, and some of it's good nature, but, but now the really vicious attacks are coming from the left, uh, and this. You know this line that's uh, that is Lincoln um, was really a racist and didn't really do anything to slavery. And there's even I don't know how can they even posit that, John Crib? Yeah, how can they do that? I mean, just they're just lying. Yeah, they do. It is. It's just not true. There's a there's a Disney program that's out now on the Disney Plus, uh, you know, platform. I'm not sure it's on the regular Disney cable, but anyway, it's called the the Proud Family. Louder and prouder. And there's there are a couple of episodes in the second season that I've watched recently. It's just horrifying that in the, the last episode of the second season, there's a group of kids in a classroom, and one of them says, you know, Lincoln uh, didn't really care anything about ending slavery or freeing, freeing, freeing the slaves. And their teacher uh, affirms that and says, uh, and actually he, he wanted to deport all of us. The, the teacher's African-American, so the kids. And one of the kids says, well, that should be the first line of his biography. Well, I guess you'd have to ask John Wilkes Booth why he shot him. Well, exactly. He gave his life to end slavery. He literally gave his life to end slavery and advance civil rights. Because, you know, John Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, the last speech he gave in public, I think it was on April 11th, um, he opened the door for uh, black voting rights. Um, and John Wilkes Booth heard that, and he turned to one of his conspirators, and at the time it was a conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln, but he turned to one of his conspirators and he said, that means black citizenship, although he didn't use the word black, he used, you know, the N-word, he said, and he said, uh, he said, that is the last speech he'll ever give, by God, I'll run him through. And then, you know, a few days later, he, he kills him. So Lincoln literally dies in the fight for civil rights for African Americans, and the line of, you know, now the 1619 Project and this, you know, this, you know, quote-unquote critical race theory stuff that is that is invading schools and the popular culture is, um, you know, tarnishing Lincoln, you know, saying that he was a racist and that he really, you know, didn't yeah. care about ending slavery. And it's just, it is a lie. It's, it's, a, it's a lie. Well, you and know, John, uh, I, I've been watching as the country has devolved from a relatively re- significant recovery from the Civil War and the era of segregation and so forth. And beginning with the Obama presidency, 
devolving into a divided country again. And I just ask you, will this country ever significantly get by the Civil War? And, I don't know. and slavery. Yeah. It just seems like we are marked right with that. Yeah, yeah, we are marked with it. And, and, um, I think Lincoln thought we would be marked with it for a long time. But, you know, I think we're heading in the wrong direction. We were, we were, you know, it seems like there, there are forces that work that are intentionally trying to divide us rather than unify us. And of course, Lincoln was the, the great unifier. He wanted to, he wanted us all to be one big American. As, as was MLK. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, work being done to try to divide everybody up into groups and then turn us on each other right now. Lincoln, I think, would be, would be very, very He'd be horrified. concerned about that. Remember, he, he says in his first inaugural address, he says, uh, to the Southern people, um, he says, we are not enemies, but friends. We, we must not be enemies. And he talks about, he says, you know, passions may estrain, but must not break the bonds of affection. Um, so, you know, John, John Cribber, one thing that's interesting is that Lee himself did not approve of slavery. And even Jefferson Davis was a moderate in the Senate before he was chosen. It seems like uh, a lot of moderate men got pulled into making a choice for or against, which in a way destroyed their their moderateness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of them did, you know, at least state that they thought that slavery was wrong and they wanted to find a way out. And um, but then, you know, they made they made their choices. Um, and, uh, you know, look what happened. But, um. Let me ask you this about the, about the last part of your book, The Rail Splitter. Uh, how important, how significant were the Lincoln Douglas debates in terms of launching Lincoln's, uh, legacy? Oh, critical. Yeah, critical. I mean, it really is what thrusts him onto the national stage uh, in a big way, uh, because so many newspapers, uh, you know, carried reports or or transcripts of the uh, of the debates, and Lincoln Lincoln realized that was happening. Um, but you know, for the for your listeners that aren't, that aren't that familiar, don't don't recall, there were there were seven debates. This was in 1858 when Lincoln is running for the Senate against Stephen Douglas of Illinois, and they hold seven debates in seven different towns around the, the state of Illinois. And, and, you know, these farmers and shopkeepers flocked by the thousands to hear these these two uh, um, statesmen, um, because this is really when Lincoln is emerging as a statesman, uh, hash it out over the issues of the day, but mostly slavery. And, and Lincoln is arguing that slavery, they've got to keep it contained in the South, uh, where he believes it's going gonna, it's gonna to die out on its own, because it's just not... Is turning out to be not a economically feasible um, system, um, and and other reasons. And, and and Douglas is arguing that if new states coming into the union vote to have slavery, then that's democracy. He calls it popular sovereignty, and that's really what they're arguing about. And that's really the issue that pushes the country uh, into uh, into civil civil war. And, that, and but, on, for Lincoln, he wants the big government option there of keeping states from becoming slave states. Yes, he wants he 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 believes that the Constitution has made slavery legal in the Southern states, but didn't say anything about new states coming into the Union. So he believes that they should just you know say no no more slavery in new in new well, states. That seems to be um, the intention of the founders when they debated yes, the Constitution, yes. right? Right. That's what Lincoln argued. Lincoln argued that the founders knew slavery was wrong. But that, uh, you know, to, to fight a war against, you know, one of the most powerful, not, not the most powerful nation on earth, to break away from it, fight a war, start a new country, hold these very different, you know, colonies and states together, which, and in slavery at the same time was just too much. The founders knew they couldn't do it. But what they did do was lay down a promise in the Declaration of Independence, which was, of course, Lincoln's favorite founding document. They laid down a promise with that, that language, uh, that we all have the right to life and liberty. And in the pursuit of happiness, equality, and, and that promise, he said, 
they they believe that promise would be redeemed someday. I believe it was the delegates from your native state mm-hmm. of South Carolina that ha- that were the hardliners on slavery, yeah. John. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, they were. Yeah. So absolutely, you guys are to blame. <laughs> well, yeah, in some ways, yeah, <laughs> we're still trying to make up for it. Have you but, traced uh, your lineage at all? Do you do you have Confederates in your family tree? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. On both sides of the family, um, we've got we've got people that fought in the war. Um, so you know, and, and that's it's it's interesting. It's fascinating uh, history. Um, I don't know, I, but well, both my mom and my dad's side, there were there were people that fought in the, for the Confederacy. Um, <laughs> And that's one thing, you know, one thing that got me interested in history was that family history as a kid. I was fascinated right. by all that. We certainly were never raised to believe that the Confederacy was, was right about slavery. I mean, we were raised to believe it was wrong about it, very wrong. But but that history just fascinated me. Um, and so that's what got, as you know, always made me interested in history. And, and one reason I've written these novels about Abraham Lincoln uh, is that, that family history. Well, at 63, you must have a bunch of more novels in you, John. I hope so. I have so much fun doing these. I mean, these are my, of all the stuff I've written, these are my favorite projects that I've ever done. I just love the research. I love the writing. I love talking to people about about Lincoln and about him. So I'm, I'm, when I kind of get through getting this book out the door, I would like to uh, turn my mind toward maybe, maybe doing somebody else from history. Uh, or uh, do you have anybody in mind? Or any couple of people in mind? No, I really don't. Yeah, I've, I've, kind of, I've one thing I've, I've, one person I thought would be, would be, gosh, it would be challenging. They would be Saint Paul. I thought, man, I wonder if we could do this, but, but that would just be such a huge challenge on the research and getting that. I've been here. tempted by that one myself, John. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean. Well, you would be better at that. You would be better at that than me. Well, I've, around. I've been a Baptist and a Catholic, so I got both sides. Going, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, he is one of the greatest men in the history of Western civilization, and what as was Lincoln, lives. as was Lincoln, yeah, yeah. And uh, but you know, it seems to me that there's so many interesting people during the antebellum and uh, Civil War period, Civil War period itself, and Reconstruction. Like, I don't think there's really been a, a really readable and uh, enjoyable book on Reconstruction written. I've read a couple, and they're just turgid. Yeah, and it's such a it's such an important part of our country's history. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, when Rutherford Hayes got elected president and brought all the federal troops mm-hmm. from the southern states... What I read just the other day was that within a few years in most of the southern states, the Confederates had taken over the government and all the power. Yeah, yeah. So they were right yeah. back where they were, except without the they slaves. Were. They were, yeah. And they were That's trying something. to get back, yeah, trying to get back as close as what they had before. Is they, yeah, and of course, just sharecropping and all that that system just kind of replaced slavery. And, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, Reconstruction was worse on. Uh, for some people, like like African Americans, then even the Civil War was, you know, just so much uh, um, destruction and terror and, and uh, misery. So, I think that uh, that uh, is surely the case. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. we had lynching all the way up into the what early sixties. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm probably wrong about that, and I apologize. But the point is that in our lifetimes, John, we've lived through. That leftover uh, post post bellum period of the South, where you know truly racist people were in charge of our state governments. That's right, and and you know, I, I look around today. Sometimes people ask me, "What would Lincoln say if you were back here today?" And I say, "Well, I have no idea." But you know, I think he would be amazed at the progress we had been have been making. And I mean, I live in. South Carolina, and you know, I mean, it, people think nothing of of things that people used to freak out over. Every, yeah. you know, I mean, they just you just don't you just don't bat an eye at, at, at things that people used to worry over 
as far as relations between the races go, which is a great thing. Yeah, um, and, and I think that an acknowledgement of that is, is important. I mean, sometimes in our, our political narrative, you know, it, it, people act like that we're still, you know, back in the days of segregation or the Civil War. Or something. It's just well, we've been not. defined. We've we've been defined as generically racist because we're white. Yeah. So we can't. Yeah. We are we are racist coming out of the womb if we're white. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think Lincoln would be would be really disappointed by by that that narrative because to say the least so John, to say yeah, the least yeah. <laughs> yeah, things, things off. but we have we we've come so far uh since those awful days of of you know slavery and civil war and 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 uh reconstruction and then of course all the way through Jim Crow we've just come so far i think the country um needs to you know to acknowledge its progress and success we're sometimes we're too good at zeroing in on our faults and, you know Assessing about about what's wrong, we need to acknowledge uh, what's right and what we have. Done yeah, we right. are a country that produced. Right. We're a country that produced Lincoln, and I think yeah. in your novels, in your historical novels about Lincoln, we are doing precisely what you said we ought to do, and that is read about the progress, read about how we put slavery aside and try to heal our country, even though, as I said earlier, I think it it's a cut that will never heal, at least not in our lifetimes. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And I, I, that's because one of the things I'm trying to do with these novels, and, you know, they, they say you can either, you know, light a candle or curse the darkness. And this is, this is the lighting the candle part that, because it is, you know, it was such a magnificent life, Lincoln's life, and that 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 story covered in the rail splitter of that that journey from a log cabin to the White House is it's an amazing story, it's an important story. In a lot of ways, it's the story of the American dream, and it's an important story for I think for people to know. When too often, I think the message these days is, you know, the system's rigged and you're a victim, and just these negative messages. We need, uh, you know, generations of Americans were inspired. By that journey from the log cabin to the White House, and they people need to know that story and, and be inspired by it. Well, and one image, of, one image I've come away with, John, is how you described Lincoln. I think he was walking to Springfield, but he had a stick and a piece of cloth holding all his worldly possessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of thin That's books, right. you put it, and exactly right. That man became a if not the greatest, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Yeah, absolutely. And there are all kinds of great character lessons in that story of how he made that journey. From, you know, there's all kinds of lessons about perseverance and uh, hard work and self-reliance and integrity uh, that are embodied in his life. And I hope those come out in uh, in the rail splitter because uh, that's, that's, an, that's an important part of the story and, and why he became that great leader. And he had trouble with his dad, though. Yeah. I mean, that the whole first 50 pages of the book talk about how his father tried to keep him being a farmer and, and not someone yeah. who read books all the time. Yeah. His father, uh, Tom Lincoln, uh, was uh that didn't have a lot of education himself and uh he thought when he saw his son sitting around with a book in his hand instead of plowing a field he thought he was being lazy you know he he believed in, in so, a certain amount of education but beyond that it was you know was kind of a waste of time and he thought you know his idea of success was 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 connected to the land getting land owning land farming land that's what you know and he thought this was a big strong tall young man and he's he's blowing it so he and and, Link, and Abe Lincoln just did not see eye on us, and it caused a tension that lasted um, as long as, as his father was alive. Uh, Lincoln, and, if he, and when they moved from Kentucky to Indiana, mm-hmm. and when Tom and his and his wife, that is his stepmother, to Abe decided to go back to Indiana, Abe said, "I am staying." Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a decision! He, he realized, what a what a moment! Right? Yeah, he realizes that he's got that the time has come that he's got. He goes with his family. He really doesn't want to go to Illinois with them to begin with, but 
I think he does it for his stepmother or anything else. He, he, he goes along to help them out, to help them move. And then, but then when they decide they're going to go back and, and, and they actually end up staying in another place in Illinois instead, but in the end, but, but, but he decides I've got to get away now or I'm never going to get away. <laughs> so he tells his father no, you know, he, he said but no, I'm not. It I'm could not be said that Tom did a pretty darn good job in finding another wife after oh, yeah. Lincoln's, Abe Lincoln's Biological mother died. Right. He goes. He. He. You know. He's, he, he, these two kids, uh, or really three, Lincoln, who's just about ten years old, and his sister Sarah, and their their young cousin Dennis Hanks is with with, with them. After their, after Nancy Hanks Lincoln dies, he says to him basically, "Kids, stay here," and and he takes off and just leaves these young people alone for weeks out on the Indiana frontier. It was a very hard time. They probably thought he wasn't coming back after a while, but then he reappears and with this woman they've never seen before and three more children. And he had gone back right. to Kentucky. He had heard that Nat, uh, that uh, Sarah Bush Johnson Lincoln, or Sarah Bush Johnson had been widowed, and he goes back and proposes to her and brings her back to help raise his two children. And she, she, she becomes a, a second mother, a very important figure in young Lincoln's life, because she understands that burning eagerness to learn that he has uh, more than his father does. Well, John Cribb, I just want to say once again what a wonderful book this is. It's called The Rail Splitter, a novel from Republic. And this is a follow-up to your novel about Lincoln's last five years, Old Abe. And for those of you that re- listen to audiobooks, Old Abe is, is on Audible, in a audible uh, audiobook form. Will we be getting that with Rail Splitter, too? I hope so. Uh, the Audible for Old Abe it took it, it seems like two or three months as I recall, something like that to come out after the hardback came out. So I hope it's on the way. I need to talk to my publisher about that. I uh, think it yeah. will. And I, I, the way it reads, it would make a wonderful audiobook because it, you have such a gift for storytelling. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I hope it will, we'll have all of that soon. Well, I want to thank John Cribb once again for being a guest on Church and Culture. And maybe we'll figure out something else to talk about and you can come back I would love to I would love Great. to and to all of you listening uh, I'll be back at this time and at this day next week if you have any comments or questions about church and culture you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.